Um, good morning, everyone. Let me add my um, wish. Happy Mother's Day to all the, the mothers who are here. Um, won't you open your Bible with me to James chapter 1, and we're going to read together verses 19 to 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come again, as your church, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us with what James has just commanded, that you would, by your Spirit, open up our hearts, that you would give us the meekness that we need to receive the word that you have implanted in our hearts, the word that is able to save our souls. We pray in your holy name. Amen. One of the most interesting biblical evaluations or character descriptions for me is in the book of Numbers, Numbers 12, verse 3, which says this of Moses, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's a very interesting character description, especially when you consider that Moses wrote the book of Numbers. But as it's God's word, it is first and foremost for us a statement of truth that benefits us as we study the life of Moses. And if you were to study the life of Moses, it would tell you what we mean when we say that he was meek. What does meekness look like? Because if you're studying, you might want to ask the question, how? What on earth made Moses the meekest man in the world? The world wouldn't call him meek. Not uh, by their standards, not by a common, perhaps, misunderstanding of what meekness means. For the world, meekness often is no more than uh, timidity or weakness. The pastor, Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Blessing of Humility, tells a story of a friend who, who had been listening to a series he preached on the Beatitudes. And his friend told him, but when you preached on the Beatitude of meekness, I decided I'd give that one a skip, not interested in being meek. For him, meekness meant timidity, being spineless or unassertive or easily dominated. Moses was none of those things. There was a, a fire in him. But in fact, if you look at your life, the reason you'd want to ask, how is Moses the meekest man, is the truth that he struggled with anger. Did he not? Moses had an anger problem. James is going to point out how anger is often the great enemy of meekness in our lives. We know that Moses had to flee for his life from Egypt because he killed a man in his anger. We know he spent 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain with the Lord where he received the commandments from God on stone tablets. And he comes down the, the mountain, he sees Israel worshiping a golden calf, and in his anger he breaks those tablets and has to start all over again. We see the fire in him and what he did with that, that idol, how he ground it down to dust and, and poured that dust into their drinking water and made Israel drink it as judgment. 
Later, his anger would get him in trouble, wouldn't it? After Israel had been complaining for the umpteenth time, God tells Moses to go and speak to the rock at Meribah and that that rock would produce water for the people. Well, in his anger, instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock twice, disobeying God's instruction. And Moses was told, you cannot enter the promised land because of what you've done. So you look at the life of Moses and might think, what is it that makes him the meekest man? Well, let's put Moses on on the shelf for a little bit and come to the letter of James. Because in this passage, James is going to get to the heart of meekness. What it means to be meek. And then I think we'll be able to understand, if we come back to Moses, how he was the meekest man. Remember where we are. James is speaking to a group of Christians that are struggling under trial. He wants to encourage them under their pressure to be able to respond to their trials well. He knows that God is producing in them through these trials a steadfastness and an endurance. And they are to be rooted in an unwavering faith in the goodness of God. So now we come to verse 19, and it might look at first like James is just jumping to a new topic, jumping to something else, to these isolated instructions. But I believe there's a significant um, connection between this section and what has followed before. We can see here that James is uh, concerned with the relationships in the church, the way that people speak to one another. And the tongue in the book of James is going to come up again and again. He's concerned for their hearts towards one another. And there seems to have been somewhat of a lack of humility, a lack of meekness. This lack of meekness that reveals itself in messy personal interactions is a, a symptom of a bigger problem. A bigger problem that James is going to be addressing in the section we look at this week and next week. A greater problem of relating to God and His authority through His Word. James knows that the trials of life can tend to cause in our hearts a cloudiness, a cloudiness in our minds, a distrust sometimes in what God is doing in our lives. And that can even cause trouble in our, our motivations. We begin to act and, and deal with one another and the decisions we make in the world based off motivations that don't line up with God's goodness and His glory. It's this cloudiness in heart that can make us move away from a healthy trust in God and His Word. And that can become a breeding ground for relational fallout in the home and in the church. So in this section, for the sake of our relationships, and more than that, for the sake of our relating to God as a heavenly father, James is going to address the heart, maybe struggling with meekness in the midst of trial. Let's see three things today in in James, three things he reveals about meekness. We're going to see the evidence of meekness firstly, then the enemy of meekness, and then finally the effect of meekness. Number one, the evidence of meekness in verse 19. He starts out on this note, Know this, my beloved brothers. Again, we see James's affection for these people, for the church, his care. We see his own pastoral meekness in these words. When James writes, he doesn't just see a problem to be solved or a task to be completed. He sees faces. He's speaking to those he loves. He wants to serve them. 
And so he addresses difficult topics, but it's not in a a tone of harshness. There's no self-righteousness in his approach. James speaks with love to those he loves, and he commands of them three things, three very important signs of meekness. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. A man by the name of Stephen Sample wrote a book, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And in this book, he says the following, the average person suffers from three delusions. Delusion number one, that he is a good driver. Delusion number two, that he has a good sense of humor. And delusion number three, that he is a good listener. Most people he says, including many leaders, are terrible listeners. They think talking is more important than listening. That's often true, isn't it? Very many more words are spoken than are actually heard in the world. The psychologist Paul Turnier, who saw countless counselees, said this, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, Dialogues of the deaf. Dialogues of the deaf. Have you ever spoken to somebody and you've seen that vacant expression on their eyes? Or you know from their body language that they are miles and miles away. If you're honest, you know that that's been you at times before, hasn't it? Why is this the case? Why do we seem to have such a listening problem, a hearing problem? It's a, it's a problem of meekness. And when you're talking to me, maybe it's this, I'm I'm too distracted to listen to you. I'm too busy thinking about what I'm going to say next in response to you. The truth is I'm too full of my own uh, thoughts, my own self-important opinions. Maybe this is the truth. I prefer to hear me than I do to hear you. Oh, I'm too full of my own problems, my own plans and thoughts. My passion is already used up in my own interests and my own needs. I'm filled with a, a zeal for my own kingdom. I'm too distracted for you. Now you add trials to the mix and the the problem is compounded. Now in my heart, I've got a a restlessness. I'm struggling to trust God in my life. If I don't get my way, if I don't have control, my world will come crashing down. I think that's why James links the three here, this quick to hear and slow to speak. I think that's why he links it with slow to anger. As Alec Matias says in his commentary, the great talker is rarely a great listener, and never is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over. So in my trial, in my state of turmoil and self-absorption, people often in that moment can become nothing more to me than an obstacle, an obstacle to me getting my way and my wants, obstacles maybe even to my reign and my throne. I'm slow to hear you because I'm slow to trust him. I can't give you my full attention. Who's going to watch out for my problems? I'm quick to anger because I cannot rest in God's control over my life. James here is calling for meekness, a peacefulness in trials that doesn't clamor for control, doesn't lash out or doesn't demand to be heard. How much damage done in families and in churches could have been avoided if we had just taken these three simple commands to heart. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
feel like we should write these on sticky notes and put them all over our houses. Put them on your steering wheel when you're driving in, in traffic. Put, put it on your door as you're about to walk into your house from work. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So much hurt could be avoided if we were more like our Father. This is what He's like, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Meekness is this. It's, it's loving who our Father is, wanting to be less like us and more like Him. That leads to the second point. We see the enemy of meekness in this passage. Now the world sees this command, that we are to be slow to anger as a preposterous command. Right? Anger is an emotion, isn't it? You don't control your emotions. Maybe you can control what you do in your anger, but you can't be slow to anger. That's ridiculous. Douglas Moon, his commentary says, psychologists will sometimes claim that emotions, since they are a natural product of the personality, cannot be truly controlled, only suppressed or ignored. But James assumes differently. Emotions are the product of the entire person. And by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, the person can be transformed so as to bring even emotions in line with God's word and will. Emotions are linked to our motives, what is our passion, what shapes our hearts, and what motivates us. I've been reading through a book that I would like to recommend to you if you struggle with anger. It's a book called Good and Angry by David Powlison, and he makes this, this point in the book speaking about motives. He has a chapter called, All of You Does Anger. So it's not just in your mind, it's not just uh, emotions, it's not just your blood boiling, it's not just physiological. He says you get right down into the heart level, it's about motives as well. And he says when anger goes bad, it's because, he puts it this way, motives operate in the God-like mode. Not that you're being like God, but that you're displacing God in your life. You're saying in bad anger, I want my way. I want to be in control. You should obey me, listen to me, attend to my every want. How dare you cross my almighty will? Our anger problem is a problem of control. Your kingdom is under threat. So in your anger, it's, it's the outworking of not your kingdom come and your will be done, but my kingdom come, my will be done. Paulison says, motives are your core values and commitments, what you base your identity on. They shape and energize your emotions, thoughts, and actions. They determine how you treat people. They determine how you react to pain, loss, or threat, the provocations to anger. They determine how and why you get angry. And whether your anger is radiantly healthy or somehow diseased. And so James says, shall be slow to anger. And in verse 20, because or for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, the enemy of meekness that causes turmoil in our relationships with our wives, our, our husbands, our children, our relationships in the church is this anger of man, I believe, that flows from a restless distrust of God. It's an anger that exists because of our motives, core commitments, Paulison says, that are not aligned with this ultimate purpose, the righteousness of God, that God's glory would be primary, that He would be glorified, not us in our lives. 
That kind of anger does not produce behavior that is pleasing to God. It doesn't produce what is beautiful and God-honoring. It doesn't produce righteousness in the world. Now, to be clear, James is not here in this passage saying that you are never to be angry, right? He's not prohibiting all kinds of anger. doesn't say never get angry. He says be slow to anger. Paul says something similar. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So Scripture makes clear that anger can be appropriate. It can be good. There is a spirit-led anger that can lead to righteousness. You may not, that may seem strange to you, and you may not like this, but the Bible takes good anger and puts it on display again and again and again, doesn't it? It speaks of a God who is perfectly good, righteous, and never capricious, not tossed to and fro into fits of rage. He is stable, but who is nevertheless one who gets angry. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we see a God who gets angry. Paulison says, the only one who is good also happens to be the best known angry person in all history and literature. No other person in history has ever allowed his or her anger to be so carefully detailed and held up for public inspection. No book ever written tells so much about one person's anger and portrays it as essentially and coherently good. God gets angry. His, his wrath exists against sin. It's not the, the petty, harsh, vindictive kind of angry we are so often, um, uh, that so often happens in our lives. But his wrath is balanced, isn't it, with mercy and patience and kindness. His anger is a counterpart to his purity and holiness. Now you might say, well, there's the God of the Old Testament, and then there's the God of the New Testament, and Jesus came along, and we need to stop you right there, right? When Jesus came, we saw him get angry too. Scripture records Jesus getting very angry at times, preaching sermons of woes against hypocritical religious leaders, making whips, overturning tables because of what had happened in God's house, what they had made of that house. Jesus is the great I am. He's God in the flesh. In him too, there is compassion and anger in perfect harmony. And we are called at times to be angry, to be angry at sin and its effects, to be angry at the enemy and his schemes. One of the great problems in the church is that we aren't angry enough. We're not angry at the right things. We aren't angry enough to put sin to death. We aren't angry enough to pray without ceasing against the enemy's schemes. We aren't angry enough to speak the truth and love to one another. We're not angry enough because we actually care about God's glory in the world. But even if you believe that it is God's glory that drives your anger, James's word here must be a word of warning for you. We need to hear him. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We don't discount the need for righteous anger, but James is sharing with us a general truth that whenever we are angry, we are to be extremely suspicious of that anger. Alec Matia again says, it is not a pure emotion. It is usually heavily impregnated with sin. 
self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness. Most of us would have to confess that holy anger belongs in a state of sanctification to which we have not attained. Is that not true of the majority of our anger? Impregnated with sin, with self. Every time we get angry, what we have to do is the hard work of sifting through that anger, looking through that anger, finding the ugliness of our own self-glory in it, the sin that taints it. We are to check our motives before we act and respond and make sure our anger is, is aimed in the right direction. I mean, think about it. Can you remember a single time where you helped somebody by responding to them when you were angry towards them? By responding in anger. The truth is most of our anger is misplaced because, and misaimed because in our anger we aren't thinking about God, we are thinking about self. I try to think about a, a way to illustrate this and I, uh, I'm a little bit reticent to to do it, but it's, it's the most easily accessible illustration, and it's one from my own life. My children struggle to obey me. They just do. I don't know, it's maybe something to do with them being six, four, and two, or just the fact that they are human. Whatever reason, they are professional sinners. They don't need to be taught. They know all the tricks. They know how to manipulate and test boundaries and appear innocent, and when they disobey, I get angry. And sometimes I do way more damage in my anger than if I just said nothing at all and done nothing at all. I justify my anger. It's my role to lead in the home. They need to learn how to obey. If they can't obey me, how are they going to learn how to obey God? That might be true. But in reality, there's something else that's often going on in my heart, a motive that is dark and sick and cannot produce the righteousness of God. Often this is in my heart, to my shame. It is my reign that they've subverted. And I'm clamoring for control over my situation. If they're disobeying me like this, it, it reflects on how poor of a, a father I am. And then I get angry. I'm right to be concerned for them. I'm right to want to deal with sin. And I'm right to be moved by compassion for the the wrong in their lives for the sake of the glory of God and for their good. But the truth is when I act often, I don't do the surgery in my heart that looks at motive and I act in my anger. Is my motive, my kingdom come or your kingdom come? Is it truly the righteousness of God that I seek? This is the bigger picture for James behind the sinful anger, the problem of meekness. It's our hearts before God, and so he pans out now to the bigger picture, the role of meekness and what that plays in our relating to God. So number three, let's see the, the effect of meekness, the effect of meekness in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. As our motive becomes more and more the righteousness of God, the glory of God, it looks like two things in this verse, a negative and a positive. It's a posture that takes sin seriously on the one hand and on the other hand desires desperately to hear from God, desires to hear from Him. Put away, he says, firstly, all filthiness and rampant wickedness. 
That word, word put away um, means more literally take off. It's this picture of taking off clothes. We see this throughout the New Testament. You take off the old in order to put on the new. Ephesians 4, we put off the old self that is corrupt through deceitful desires and putting on the new self, Paul says. Romans 13, 12, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And you always see that order, right? Put off and then put on. Put off and then put on. That makes sense. Before you can put something on, you have to take off what was there before. And James's point, he drops the metaphor halfway. He just says, put away, and then he says, receive. In order to be open to God's word, in order to hear from him, you must get rid of the sins that the Holy Spirit reveals. And this is a truth of many, many people. Maybe it's the reason today the word is not alive and active to you. It could be because there's sin in your life that you are refusing to put away, that you're refusing to deal with. You want the word to be sweeter? You want to to more desperately come to it? then be serious about the sin that is revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Meekness is this. It's a daily action of putting off, of putting away, of praying. Help me to see my sin clearly and give me the courage to obey, the strength to do something about it, to fight it and flee it. Meekness is taking temptation seriously. Jesus uses the language of gouging out the eye if you have to. So often we have sins in our lives that we, we're not willing to do those things. We're proud. We have justifications. We commit to a lifestyle of repentance as his children. And as we do this in turn as well, we receive with meekness the implanted word. This is James's version of Paul's putting on the new. James gets to the point. We are not just to be quick to hear one another but we are to be quick to hear his word, to come to him for life. He says this is the word that is able to save your souls. So we know at the the moment of conversion that that's how it works. The Holy Spirit takes the gospel that is proclaimed, the word of God, the word of truth, and he brings new life where only there was death before. But here speaking to Christians, he's referring to a word that is already implanted, God's word, therefore, is this word that daily transforms and renews and sanctifies. It's the word that saves both at that moment of conversion, but that word that walks with us, that progressively works out in our salvation, a salvation that will be completed at the day of Christ. James is calling for a daily, close-knit, long life, a lifelong affiliation with God's word an eagerness, and a desire to hear from him. Is this description of the psalmist true of you? Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. His word frees us and transforms us. And James is calling here for a specific relationship to God where we lay down our arms, a relationship of submission, We say, enough, I'm tired of my own voice. I want to hear you. Enough of my own kingdom and glory. Oh, make me humble before you. Help me to love your voice, Father. James knows it isn't easy. The sin is still there, and maybe you feel that sort of hopelessness, a sin that is too strong. 
Maybe your desire for the word is too weak. How does James describe your sin here? What is the word he uses? Rampant. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Rampant wickedness. That means overwhelming or abundant. The picture I get in my mind at this verse is the picture I think I've shared before of of weeds in a garden. When we lived in Kempton Park, we went through a, a drought and it sort of killed our grass. Everything went brown. And when that drought ended, the rains came eventually and that turned everything green. But a lot of that green wasn't the kind of green that you want on your lawn. There were these broadleaf weeds all over the place. And I tried everything with those weeds. I tried poison. I even sat with this tiny fork on the ground with my back breaking, trying to get these weeds out one by one. And the next week, in in the place of one weed, there'd be five. That's the picture. Rampant. It's a picture uh, James employs to describe our sin. If that's the case, what is the hope that we have? What is your hope and my hope? It's God's planting work. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word. We saw last week how he's the father of lights, the giver of every good, every perfect gift, everything that you could possibly need for your life and for godliness. God gives it. And he's saying here with that word implanted that he's given already what he's asking you to receive. He gave it with this goal in mind. You remember verse 13? Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth by that word. He's implanted it in our hearts. And that word, if you are a child of God, will grow and it will bear fruit. This is God's grace that he empowers what he commands. If his word wasn't already implanted in you, there would be no hope in your life that you would desire it or love it or want to read it or obey it. But you do as his child because he's implanted it in your heart and you want to hear his voice. And he works in his word still to capture our hearts, to lead us slowly forward in Christ. And by the way, it's the only thing that makes sense of this, what we're doing today, isn't it? You all sitting, listening to me, you hope for less than 35 minutes. It's the only thing that makes sense of this. Think of this in the eyes of the world. It's crazy. I don't have a doctor behind my name. If I did a TED talk, nobody would come. I'm, I'm too young. I don't have enough life experience for anybody to care what I have to say. I'm opening up a 2,000 year old letter written by a man we've never met to a people we've never met. And yet, here we are in the book of James, hanging on every word, hanging on for dear life. Why? Because God has planted it in our hearts. Because His Spirit loves the Word and loves you, is inside you as His child. And He gives grace to my speaking. He gives grace to your hearing. And I hope that that is how you are here today, that you are here in meekness to hear from Him to know that God can be found through his word and that he is worth the searching because he is good. He is a good master. So to the church facing fiery trials, James is saying, let meekness win the day. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak, slow to anger. Put away your sin and let all of that be the fruit of what's gone on in your heart, the fact that your heart belongs to God, that you trust him in your trial and that you rest in his word. May this be true 
of all of us. Ed Welch, another great counselor, said this, The meek do not rail against the Lord in their persecution. They might not understand why something has happened to them. It is hard to understand how God's love and our own suffering coexist, but the meek don't demand answers. Instead, they trust God because of who He is, what He has said, and what He has done. They wait. They walk before the Lord in humble obedience. But then He says, meekness might not describe you. Instead, you might insist on understanding rather than trust. Your questions to God might verge on the angry and accusing rather than submissive. James's point is that you cannot be angry and attentive at the same time. An angry heart, an angry soul is not a meek heart or an attentive soul. We humble ourselves to God's rule. We, in meekness, receive His word. And we do that not because we, we need something else from Him. It's not a, a ploy for our earthly circumstances to be better. It's not because we want control of our lives. It's because He is precious to us. That's why we come to His word. He is our joy. Whatever we face, we know whatever it is, we want Him because He's a good shepherd whether we lie in pastures green or we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we know His goodness and mercy follows us every day of our lives, whether that's by streams of water or through His rod and staff of discipline. We trust Him in all of it. That's what meekness is. And that's why Moses was the meekest man on earth. Yes, he lost his temper at times. He went through Years and years of their grumbling and complaining. And yet through it all, that endless battle of their recalcitrance and their stubbornness and sin, he led. He interceded for them. Moses' life was sacrificial. He put the interests of God's people above his own interests. His desire was the righteous purposes of God in this people. And his temper, his temper meant that he could not enter the promised land. This was God's response to the sin of Moses, a public sin. He said, I'm going to show Israel how serious I am about sin, and you are not going to see the land. After 40 years of leading him, he had to look from the mountaintop into the land. But how did he respond? Not a word of complaint. He wasn't grumbling in what God had ordained. Moses' motive was this. It's your kingdom come, your will be done. He could accept that loss because he knew in God he had gained everything already. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts, we confess, are so often filled with strivings for control, a desire for our own reign, our own recognition, our own glory. And it's these things that lead often to our anger in, in dealing with the people we love. Father, as we sit here, we, we know how we have hurt spouses and children and friends. We confess how we have hurt your church through gossip We've desired to convert people to our cause. Father, we need your forgiveness. We need your help. 
We want to be angry for the right reasons. Angry because of the sin and the damage it does in our lives. Angry enough to do something about it. But, oh God, as we live together in the church and in our world and our families, we ask that you would make us patient, gracious and kind like you are. Fill our hearts with a sense of your character and a love for you, who you are so that we would have good relationships. There would be healing and beauty springing up in the church. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.